All right, everyone, come on in, and we'll get started. Come on in, find a seat, and you need to have a lesson, a new lesson. We've been taking a couple of weeks for each of the lessons, so sometimes you're just bringing the old one back with you, but today starts a new one, so you need a new set of paperwork. The guys were handing them out at the, uh, and then over here, Carolyn, you need one? Larry, are you doing this section? So we've got the guys covering sections, I think. You need one? Okay, right here. And then anybody over here need one? We've got the guys covering these sections. But everybody was caught coming on in. That's great. Great work, guys. Thank you. All right, we will get into lesson four then in just a minute. Let me announce. My wife runs the Ladies Heart to Heart Ministry that meets uh, every other, or excuse me, the second and fourth Mondays of the, the month. And she asked me to make note with you that the next Heart to Heart is not tomorrow. She, she says that that was announced. Uh, I wasn't listening, but, uh, but she says that was announced, that it's tomorrow. It's not tomorrow. It's a week from tomorrow. It's the next Heart to Heart. So ladies... Don't show up tomorrow. There'll be nobody here to, to greet you for that. And then just a couple of events, important events, on at the end of the month, three weeks from today, on the 27th, we will have our newcomers orientation class start. It's four weeks. It's during this hour. If you are someone who's trying to figure out where the Lord would have you to grow and serve and whether or not this would be the place for that, we offer it three times a year during those four weeks to help you do that. So it gives information about our church. We give you a notebook of material that I go through, so I lead that class. And it's in a relatively small setting so that you can ask any questions you might have uh, going through it. And as I say, it's truly for information. You take it, we don't then come after you, we don't uh, pressure you or anything like that. There's no obligation on your part with regard to membership because you take that class. It's for the purpose of helping you decide that. So if you are someone who is without a church, you're trying to find a church, you're the person that we offer this class for. Newcomer's orientation starts three weeks from today, and then it'll go for four Sundays in a row during our second hour. On that same day, three weeks from today, five o'clock in the afternoon is our next baptism. So if you have never been uh, baptized, and that means biblically that you've been immersed to symbolize death, burial, and resurrection, if that's never happened with you, then if you are a follower of Jesus, then that's something you want to do because he says so. Uh, he commands all of his followers to, to be baptized, and so I would love to talk to you about that. I introduced a couple of people this morning that are going to be part of our next baptism, and if you would like to be considered for that, you need to let us know right away because it's only three weeks away. It's a one-page uh, application, baptism application. You can pick that up at our welcome center that's out in the lobby. Tell them you'd like a baptism application, uh, and you can fill that out at home. You can fill it out right there, but bring it back. Uh, get it to them. They'll give it to me. I'll get with you, and we'll go from there. All right, that's all of the announcements. We are continuing our series, as you see on the front cover of these notes you received and also on the screen, Worry-Free Decision-Making. If you've missed previous sessions... Those are all recorded like all of our sermons and lessons are, whether on Sunday or on Wednesday or anything else, we record them. They're on our website. 
So I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to those. But today we're going to, to pick up with the idea that God has made His will known, that God has revealed His will, so that His will, thankfully, is not something that we have to search for and find, which was a, a misunderstanding that many of us grew up with. And especially when we were young and we were getting out of high school and starting as young adults and you have all of those young adult decisions you're having to make, that was a very scary time because we were told uh, for, uh, for a good reasons, but I think erroneous reasons, that we had to find God's will. And it was kind of mystical. It was very difficult to know if you had actually found it. And so... Uh, you live your life uh, afraid sometimes that you've made the wrong choice and choices that could send you on a trajectory for the rest of your life that is going to uh, be harmful to you and even perhaps others. So it was a very scary time. The good news is that it has been revealed. God has written a book and he has his moral will, uh, what he wants us to do in the pages of, of that book. And so John MacArthur can write a little book that we have in our resource center called found colon God's will and he's playing off of that idea that you don't have to search for it it's not hidden it's not lost it is actually found and so here it is and that little book uh, can be very liberating for you I would encourage you to read it if you're uh, having any difficulties with that with that notion so that being the case God has made his will known in the pages of holy scripture in the the bible well, then we need to make sure that we handle the Bible appropriately and that we apply its principles to our lives appropriately so that we can use it to make decisions. And that's what this lesson is about. Top of page 21, living by the book. If the book contains God's moral will, and it's only God's moral will that I can pursue and know, His sovereign will, as you've heard, heard me say for several weeks, is known only to God, and that is by, happens by God's decree. And the good news with God's sovereign will is that He uses that to overcome sins and mistakes we make in trying to pursue His moral will. So we're going to get that wrong, but God is still sovereign. And it's still all going to work out together for good for those who love Him. So all of that is designed to take some pressure off of you. You don't have to find it. God's got it covered. God does have a sovereign will. And so God calls you to walk with Him, learn of Him, learn His book, seek to apply it to your decisions, and then don't worry about it. And I believe that, what I just said to you, uh, from to the bottom of my heart. And I am so thankful that somebody taught me that. I can't even, I don't know where I picked it up, bits and pieces here and there over the years. But I'm so glad I arrived at that, I believe, correct conclusion because it has helped me in my life immensely to be able to make decisions and not worry about it. It doesn't mean I make the right decision all the time. I don't, but I'm still not worried about it because I know I tried. And that's all the Lord's asking, asking us to do. And so I do that and then move on. And that helps me in my personal life and it helps me in my ministry life. You know, sometimes you have to make big decisions in ministry. And so we have, we do what the book says, and you get many counselors, and so thankfully we have a leadership team, and so it's not just me having to do this on my own, and we, we talk about it, we pray about it, and then we make a decision. 
as best we can, and then we, and then we go from there. So it will help you as well if you do that. And I have these principles that are in these pages in Lesson 4, attempted to practice these in my life, and they have been of great, uh, of great help to me. Uh, so I hope they'll be of help to you. Top of page then, 21. We have seen that God has made known His desire. That's what we call His moral will, what God wants, what God desires. And He's done that in His Word, the Bible. His desire can be put under these two categories, that we participate in His purpose. So He has told us that. I've got a purpose for you. I've got a mission for you. I have gifted you. If, you're, if you belong to me, I've gifted you in order to participate in that. So participate in His purpose. And secondly, as you're doing that, reflect His character. So God wants to see mirrors in His world reflecting Him back to Him. So as we pursue God's purpose, we are also growing in godliness. And God tells us in His Word what that looks like and how for us to do that. So you got these two major categories. It fits under there. And then you use God's Word in order to, in order to pursue both of those. We saw in Lesson 2 that pursuing God's purpose requires us to make life decisions, things like career and marriage and location that advance the biblical mission. So again, those are recorded back in lesson two, but those are the, the big things. But if I'm going to be pursuing God's mission, then marriage now is going to be viewed as finding a partner in ministry, finding a partner in mission. If I'm going to be married and God doesn't have marriage for everybody, some, some will be single by God's, by God's design so that they have more time, even more time to put into God's uh, mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 actually teaches that. If you're single, you know, see it as an opportunity to actually have more time because you don't have all of the cares that go with, with family life, the blessed cares to be sure. But instead of wallowing in that, or, or forgive the term, but whining about that, say, this is what God has for me, and so I've got this time now to, to do this. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that very thing. He teaches that. But if I am going to be married, then I'm looking for a, a, a spouse who is going to be a partner with me in ministry. And the Bible lays out that that needs to be a Christian person, a person who's going to be committed to the Lord. Obviously, they can't be committed to the mission if they're not committed to Him. And so if you're dating somebody now, if you're sitting next to somebody that you're dating that doesn't fit into that category, break up with them now. <laughs> we'll, take a, let's all, we'll just take a moment for you to, to break up with them, Okay. Now, you can pass a note next to them if you'd like or, and say, hey, it's over. But, but it really does need to be over. They need to either commit to Jesus Christ and his mission or you're not supposed to be dating them. That's God's revealed moral will, period. No questions asked. And young people do it all the time and people who grow up in church do it all the time. And they, and they date people, and they say, oh, we're just friends. And, you know, I've been around this thing so many times. I've heard every one of them, right? And, and we know how that goes. So it applies to marriage. It applies to career. It applies to location. We don't just, on a whim, decide to relocate if you're involved in the mission that God's carrying out through his church. Now, I have no authority to tell anybody when and where to relocate. 
So you make your own decisions with this. All I can do is give you the principles. But one of those principles is you don't do that kind of thing just because. You do it because it advances God's purpose. You make all your decisions that way. And so if you're going to relocate, relocate because it does that. And if it does, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I'll help you pack. Because that's a great thing for somebody to relocate or make big decisions in their lives because it's advancing the work of, of the Lord. However, middle of that paragraph, God's desire for us extends beyond the big decisions to the everyday small stuff. Because in all of these, we must choose what best displays the glory of God, that is, His character, and therefore pleases Him. True Christians desire to please God with their lives. However, because we live in a fallen world, pursuing that goal can seem quite complicated. This apparent difficulty has caused many to neglect their responsibility to always choose in the light of God's purpose and character. The proper response is to develop an approach to decision-making that will honor the Lord. In this session, we'll look at how to do that. So what I'm saying there in that paragraph is, look, you live in a sinful world. You're a sinful person. We all are in a sinful world. So everything, nothing is the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> That's why we have God's mission to be part of what he's doing in redeeming a world that's gone wrong. So it's gone wrong, and we are operating, trying to pursue God's mission in that context. And because we're doing it in that context, indeed, it can not just seem complicated, it can get complicated. We need to try to take some of the complication out of it. That's what I'm trying to do for you then in a lesson like this. So let's take a few minutes to look at the problem of living in a fallen world we're going to live by the book, we first have to face the reality that we're living by the book in a fallen world. Fallen people in a fallen world. How does that affect then my approach to decision making? We live in a broken, fallen world, I say. Sin has affected everything. It affects our health, our relationships, our pleasures, our sorrows. Indeed, there's nothing in your life that is not affected in some way by sin. But when you come to Christ for salvation, our relationship with this world drastically changes. So we've got to have a proper relationship with the world in order for us to have then a good grasp on the context in which we are making these decisions. And there are four possible ways that people relate to a fallen world. Here's the first one. You can be in the world and of the world. So who is that? I've got it for you listed there. The person who is in, located in the world, but also they are of the world in terms of their values, affections, allegiances, desires, goals. They're of the world. That's, the, that's your garden variety unbeliever. Someone outside of Jesus, someone outside of Christ. They pursue life for their own ends. They have lots of people around them who are doing exactly the same thing. They're influenced then by that as well, reinforcing their own desires and ends. They are in the world in terms of location, and they are of the world in terms of their values, allegiances, goals, and all of that. A second, though, approach is you can be not in the world and not of the world. You could be someone who has adopted a set of values and allegiances and priorities and goals 
that is different from the world. So you are countercultural in that way. But you have opted to get away from all the worldlings. So you're not in the world. You're not in the world and not of it. Now, who is that? And again, I have some for you here. The monastic approach, that's what that is in general, a monastery. Live, get your own fortress, keep other people out of it, and you'll be in this pristine thing where we all agree on our values and our approach. That's the idea. It'll be beautiful if we're all just together and we all believe the, we all believe the same thing and we're all kind of locked in here together, it'll be great. Well, here's the, thing, here's the thing that you forget. You still, when you change a dress, it doesn't change your heart. So you still, everybody in that fortress that you created still has, still has a sinful heart. They still have a sin nature, even if, they're, even if they're genuinely Christian people. And in the monastic in the monastic case, that's not always the case. I can't judge anybody's heart on that, but it's not always the case that they're a genuine Christian. Or Amish, that's a similar approach to that. We've got different values, allegiances, and we've separated ourselves from the world. And we look weird to the world, but we don't care because we're called to look weird to the world, they think. So this is how we, how we do this. Monks in monasteries, the Amish. I would add that if you read the first part of your Bible in the Old Testament and you look at the nation Israel, God was often telling Israel to separate themselves from the surrounding nations. And he was very serious about not intermingling with the nations that didn't have their allegiance toward Yahweh, the true and living God. And much of what you read in the Old Testament is about that. And it's so seriously enforced that you had dietary laws to symbolize this idea that you even eat different than. And so God does this. Now, just think for yourself, with, think to yourself for a moment, why does God do that? I mean, if that's not really the proper approach, and I say number four is the right approach, so if this one's not the right approach, then why was God telling them to be separate like that? all the time. Well, as with everything he was doing in the Old Testament, he's showing them that none of the stuff you're doing works. <laughs> Nothing you're doing works. Every prophet I gave you failed. Every king I gave you was sinful. Every priest I gave you was sinful. Every prophet, priest, and king went south. They all did. And I have, I have taken you and I've given you, I've focused on you and I've given you laws specifically for you and told you everything you're supposed to do. And as you read through the Old Testament, do they live happily ever after? It's a mess. By the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, you're supposed, you read through the Old Testament, you're supposed to be going, oh, the mess we is in. We got to have a solution to this. So God, God did much of what he did in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, is an object lesson for why, apart from a change from the inside out, it doesn't work. 
But what we have done is many of us, many Christian people have gone to the first part of the Bible to say this is the way God wants us to live. The way the first part of the Bible tells us. You, you've got people right, you got people right now making that gigantic mistake. Um, I'm not going to wax political, but anybody ever heard the term Christian nationalism? I wrote about it on my blog about a month ago, so take a look. And many of the people who are promoting this are going to the first part of the Bible to say this is the way Israel ran things, we should run things this way. Here's a 90-cent here's a term for you, a theonomist is somebody who says we are, theos is God, namos means law, we are under God's law, and God's law was given to Moses in the first part of the Bible, and a theonomist says we're supposed to still be under God's law in the Old Testament. Now here's a hint, no we're not, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it, but, but you got people like Douglas Wilson saying that, and some of you know who that, who that is, and he's got lots of friends who are, who are saying that, so I would encourage you not to get involved in that. It didn't work, and God knew it wasn't going to work, obviously, didn't he? And, he? and he gave it to show it doesn't work. And here's the solution that comes in the New Testament that he had promised throughout the first part of the Bible. So Israel tried it, and if you try it in your life and you try a sheltered approach to life, you're going to fail too. If you try to shelter your children in an, in an unwise way, you will harm your children. Your children should be raised with controlled exposure. That's the phrase I use, controlled exposure. They get exposed to the world that God has called us to minister in. So it's exposure. But it's control. You don't just throw them out there. And you have a responsibility to do that in a wise way. That's a tall order. That's the kind of thing we'll talk about in our panel discussion at our marriage retreat this weekend. So if you want to go, you have to sign up like right now. Okay? But if you, if you do that, and, but many people have thought that because they've been, I think, mistaught by their, their churches on what a holy life looks like. And it looks like withdrawing yourself. This is this kind of not in the world, not of the world approach. The, the environment that I grew up in, my Pentecostal holiness background, I've told you guys I grew up Pentecostal, but it's more than that. It was called Pentecostal holiness. And the holiness part was this, stay away from everybody else and don't look like anybody else. And if we look weird, that's just part of the persecution you go through as a, as a Christian. There's a, a movie years ago called The Village, I think. That's what it's called, The Village. And everybody, I, I, I didn't see the movie, but I've read about it. But I think if I remember right, the idea was let's all get together and let's all have this thing ordered in a particular way and it'll be great. And the, the premise of the movie, the thing goes completely south. So lose the idea that some particular environment is the answer. And if I can just get that environment right, 
And, and by the way, that's true of the church too. And the church is a calling of God's people called out of the world that are to be, the Bible calls us his saints, his holy people, to be sure. People who are trying to pursue being like Jesus, that's for sure. But this side of heaven ain't none of us there. And so if we think the church is going to be that perfect place, we've got the wrong idea as well. Third approach, you're not in the world, but you're of the world. So you're not in, you withdraw yourself, you have your own sets of stuff that you do, it's your stuff, it's not the world's stuff, it's our stuff. That's what I mean by not in the world. But you carried with you the world's values. And I call that the common evangelical approach. That's the way I see much of what passes for ministry in the evangelical world today. People who have their own stuff, but they do their stuff like the world does it. They do their marketing the way the world does it. They do business the way the world does it. Their ministries are run like the world is run, makes appeals to celebrity, and bigger is better, just like the world does. Evangelicalism is full of this. If you guys have talk shows, we, got, we have talk shows too. If you guys got entertainment, we got entertainment too. Anything you can do, we can do better because it's ours. And how do you know, how do you know it's better? Because it's got Christian in front of it. Call it Christian and it's better. Not really. You know, I heard one guy say, hey, you know, those of you that are trying to do like Christian rock and roll, he, he, he said, you're not making Christianity better. You're making rock and roll worse. <laughs> Just quit trying, okay? You just really can't do it. And, but, and, and we're really making, in some ways, making just making fools of ourselves before the world, I think. But the right approach is you're in and you're not of. The not of piece is we do have and pursue different values, different goals, different allegiances, different purpose. But we're in the world. That's the reason we have a purpose. That's the reason we have a mission. It's precisely because we are in the world. And so we do want to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we are strong enough in our faith to be able to actually know people that are not in the faith and not be pulled out of it, but rather the other way. Rather than us being pulled out, we pull them in. That's the idea. So I would never tell somebody, you know, don't have, don't have non-Christian friends. I want you to have non-Christian friends. I want you to know non-Christian people. I want you to bear witness to Jesus Christ to non-Christian friends. But you've got to be strong in the Lord to do that. And so you do need a church to fortify you. You do need brothers and sisters that you can go to to pray for you and to help you and to all of that. But that's the biblical approach that Jesus gave us in John chapter 17. So in which of these four ways do you most often relate to the fallen, broken world? So that's the problem of living in a fallen world and making our decisions in it. And then there's the problem in that context of finding God's will for our choices. In addition to the incorrect ways of approaching God's will, 
that are seen in mysticism and pietism. We saw that last week. There are a couple of others, top of page 22. Accidentalism. This is the idea that you're just going to stumble into God's will. You're not living life intentionally. This is a person who just lives life passively. Rather than them happening to life, life happens to them. Rather than you happening to life, this approach is life just happens to me and it just drags me all over the place. And I just go where the next circumstance and next thing takes me. No coherent framework by which to make decisions, live and let live. But here God has written a book, told you you're supposed to intentionally pursue these things. I'm actually, I, God, am actually going to have an evaluation of my people at the end. You're, you're my people. I love you. You're going to heaven. You're going to spend eternity with me. But there is going to be an evaluation of what you did with what I gave you. And so you can't take a passive approach then. And then there's legalism. And you see I've got a lot here about legalism. Legalism is, as the word legal suggests, has to do with laws, legalities. So legalism is an approach to finding God's will that focuses on rules. Lists of do's and don'ts that form God's will. They're comfortable when they keep the rules uncomfortable when they do not. Oftentimes they judge their spirituality by whether or not they keep the rules. So you, you create these rules and where it really goes, goes sideways and, and south is when you create these extra-biblical rules outside of the Bible, extra-biblical, and then you impose them on other people. Now, the truth is, number one here, biblical behavior does require rules and standards. I need to have rules and standards for my life, and you do too. But I don't have to impose every one of my rules and standards on you, and you don't have to do that with me. The Bible teaches. <laughs> but I, but I, do need to, I do need to pursue them. And the Bible has these two major kinds of categories of laws. When you look at the first part of your Bible and you look at the laws given there, there are 613 of them. So not just 10, there's 613. Uh, commands and prohibitions that make up the law. 613. And if you look at those 613, they fall into these categories, apodictic and casuistic. Apodictic are the ones that we're most familiar with. We're familiar with the top 10, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And there are some others outside of the top 10 that are like that as well. They are, they are timeless. Thou shalt not steal is a timeless command. Thou shalt not bear false witness is a timeless command. Thou shalt not murder is a timeless command, and so on. Uh, so many of them are timeless uh, commands. Not all, but many. And so there are those kinds. But then there are casuistic, those that depend. And the casuistic, is the, the root of that is case. It depends on the case. You, you, you develop cases. And so much of your Bible, when it lays out, in the first part of the Bible, when it lays out the laws, have you ever noticed when you read those, it'll say things like, you know, if you are, uh, if you are with your donkey on the Sabbath day, and then your donkey falls into a ditch, right? You, you read those kinds of, if this happens, 
then this is what you should do. That's these kind of laws. And you got lots of them. If this happens, and this is the circumstance, then this is what you should do. Case laws. Deuteronomy 22 is an example. All right, so the Bible gives those kinds of laws. We're no longer under those laws in the first part of the Bible, given the new covenant in Christ. The law is done. But I still need to regulate my behavior. I still need rules, and so I can, I can glean principles from these kinds of things for the ones that I'm going to develop for myself, and you're going to develop for yourself. So that's the way the rules and standards that are in the Bible are, are structured, but then you've got what happens so easily with rules is they become legalistic, and you see it in the Pharisees, bottom of page 22, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The Pharisees focused on the rules but forgot the heart. They forgot that the mission was about more than lists of do's and don'ts. It was about loving God with all you have and serving Him. Christ had strong words then for the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat while you swallow a camel. Wow. Okay. So, rules of behavior, whatever their source, can be misused, and they often are. So, be forewarned. They were in the Bible. They can be in your life and in my life, but you, still, you do need them. So, top of page 23, how do I develop them? Principles for decision-making... Find out what is right with it. What you want to do is you want to, as you approach anything, you want to find out what's right with it, not what's the opposite of that. <laughs> but most of us default to the, well, what's wrong with it approach. We naturally default to that as sinful people. Just avoid wrong, something overtly and obviously wrong, and then I can just do what I want to do. And if you can't prove it's overtly and obviously wrong, then I'm good to go. And just ask any available teenager how they make decisions. Hey, how did you decide to do that? And very often the answer will be, what? What's, what's wrong with it? And so I had to teach my girls, and I had to teach my nephews that lived with us before then, and I taught a youth group before that many years ago, and really focus in on, hey, you guys, you're, answering, you're asking the wrong question. What we want to know is what's right with it. How do I determine what's right with it? Page 23, our decisions have to be made by conviction. Now, follow carefully because you you easily can get the wrong idea about what is meant by conviction. In Christian circles, we have so mysticized things, we have made them so mystical that when we talk about things like conviction, it's this kind of mystical feeling that I have that something's wrong. 
But conviction in the Bible is something more objective than that. So they have to be made by conviction. Our decision-making must be driven by convictions about what is right or wrong. Some people evaluate their choices by feeling. For them, an act is proper if, it does not, if, they do not, uh, if, if he does not feel bad about it. Such an approach subjects God's revelation in the Bible to the emotions and feelings of the present moment. But a conviction is a settled assurance about the rightness of a particular choice. It does not deal with feelings but with facts or rational evaluation. Just as conviction in a courtroom should be based on the truth of the case presented, so conviction in our lives must be based on the truth of God's Word, His revealed will for our lives. Decisions made by biblical conviction may not feel good, but they will be right. They come from Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Here's 2 Timothy 3.16. You see it there. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful now, here's what's interesting about that list of four things that it's useful for. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. The Word of God, the Bible, Scripture, is useful for those four things. And the second of those four, translated in the NIV, rebuking, is the word for convicting. The Bible is useful for teaching and convicting and correcting and training. And in that order, on purpose, that verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, has those four things not in random order. They can't be logically in a different order. That's the order they have to be in. You get the teaching of the Bible, and then as a result of the teaching of the Bible, you form a conviction. Now, that conviction may be that... I'm doing the right thing. This is right. And it comes from the Bible. Or it may be a conviction that what I've been doing or contemplating doing is wrong. Which then, if it's wrong, it leads to the third thing, correcting. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us in the you're convicted for doing something wrong. But rather, the Bible tells you how to correct it. And then the Bible tells you how to train yourself. The word for training is the same word in the Bible for discipline. To discipline yourself. To continue in habits of proper decision-making and righteousness. And all of this is so that the people of God, the man or woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why you have the Bible. We're going to keep going, but... Let me just pause and ask you, do you think that's the way most people use the Bible? Is that the way, you, you don't have to answer, just contemplate. Do you use the Bible that way? My experience is most people do not use the Bible that way. They, our exposure to the Bible is me talking about it. We re, we, if we read it at home, very often we read it in a kind of mystical way. A verse a day will keep sin away. Good idea. And so I read, and so I read it, you know, to protect me, you know, throughout the day. But in terms of saying, hey, this is my guidebook. And I'm looking at what it says and what it is now saying in the lives of people that are recorded there about what is right and what is pleasing to God. And now I'm developing my 
my own standards, my own approach, my own convictions about what is right based upon that. And if I've got things in my life that are contrary to that, I'm convicted in the negative sense that it needs to be corrected, and the Bible tells me how to do that. And the Holy Spirit is indispensable to this process. Jesus said on the night before he was crucified, John 16, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit that causes you to want what it is you're reading in Scripture. You, you say, yes, Lord, I want that. I welcome that. I receive that. I accept that. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 is talking about when it says the natural man does not, that's the unsaved person, does not accept, receive, welcome the things of God. But the person with the Spirit does. That's what the Spirit does. It doesn't tell you what the Bible means. You have to study it for that. But having studied it and gotten what it means, the Holy Spirit causes you to say, yes, I want that. It resonates with you. By studying Scripture and knowing God, we can develop His convictions and thereby live life the way God intends it to be lived. By these convictions developed through the commands and principles of Scripture, we can form a framework for decision-making that will always think God and mission first rather than how do I feel about this. So how do I develop them? And I talk about that in the next couple of pages. So here's uh, what I'm going to do in our last three and a half minutes. Um, you, we'll pick up there on page 23 next week. But lest you think I made this stuff up, uh, I hold in my hand a one-page one page sheet that I have had for decades that I got somehow in some sort resource of John MacArthur. So, you know, MacArthur has taught on everything. He's in his 80s now. He's taught on everything like six times. He's had nothing, and he's still pastoring his church after over 50 years. And all of you are thinking, don't get any ideas, Brown. <laughs> don't worry. But anyway, somehow, in one of his resources, somehow I got this. And it is the sheet that I will, will give you next week, okay? But at the top, it's just decision-making principles. And he has, I think there are 10 of them here. And these are just principles that he gleaned from the Word of God for you to ask about all of your decisions so that you can develop the conviction that this is right. Yes, this is right. I should do this. Or no, I shouldn't. And so he's got the principle of, here they, here they are, real fast, expediency, edification, excess, enslavement, equivocation, encroachment, example, evangelism, emulation, exaltation. Do you notice they all start with an E? MacArthur is the king of alliteration. And, and he, how he's able to, sometimes I, I, I read one of his sermons and, and every point is, starts with the same letter every time. And like, how did he, my thesaurus doesn't even work that way. I can't even, <laughs> I can't find enough words to make that happen. But he makes it work like that all the time. 
So I'll give that to you next week. He gives a short explanation of each one of those, and I found it very helpful, okay? It's making your own list of casuistic kinds of, kinds of uh, standards culled from, from God's Word. I'll tell you one story, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll be dismissed. So alliteration, that's starting everything with the same letter. So a lot of guys in Bible college were taught to do that. And so then when they do their sermons, they do it that way. And MacArthur's gotten away with it for, for years, okay? So. But uh, some people in seminary, when people in Bible college are taught that, some people in seminary hate it when guys do that. And you all know Dr. Combs <laughs> is retired for, after 33 years as a professor at seminary. And he used to get poor, unsuspecting Bible college graduates <laughs> who would come to seminary. And he developed, he developed a class that every freshman student had to take first, first semester. You have to take a class taught by him called Research and Writing because he was finding these guys don't know how to write, they don't know how to do research. So I'm going to do a semester to teach them how to research and write, and then we'll be good for the next several years that they're in seminary. So this has become the thing, and now Dr. Snowberger has inherited that, and he teaches it, but he taught it for years, and he taught it when I was there. And I was in that class as a freshman, first semester. Now, I'm in there with these guys that graduated from Bible college. Thankfully for me, I didn't go to Bible college. And so I didn't learn all of these bad habits, okay? <laughs> First assignment, create just a simple outline for a research for a research topic. So research this topic and create a simple outline. And then turn that in. That was the first assignment. And one of the guys, one of the poor Bible college guys, turned in his research paper outline, alliterated. And Dr. Combs says... Uh, Juan, this guy's a pastor friend of mine to this day, by the way. Juan, so Juan, I know Juan. And he says, Juan, I notice all these, this is alliterated. Why is it alliterated? And Juan says, well, that's just the way I was taught. And Dr. Combs says, in his inimitable style and loving kindness, <laughs> well, you were taught wrong. <laughs> And you say, I didn't know Dr. Combs was that mean. <laughs> but I assure you, he is that mean in the classroom, especially. So, MacArthur can get away with it, but nobody else can, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, this day. Thank you for the blessings of the Lord today. Lord, uh, this is the uh, most special day of the week. The first day. The day that commemorates that Jesus came alive from the dead, first day of the week. And I thank you that for 2,000 years, your people have been gathering on the first day of the week to commemorate that we believe that. And so I thank you that we are able to be here today and that we care about that event because it is the central event of all human history, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for changing our lives as a result of that and causing us to desire what you desire and to, and to change our values and our priorities and our allegiances. And Lord, we, we, we're here in a class like this because we want to please you and pursue your, your will. 
So Lord, help us to, to have clarity as we implement these principles in our everyday lives to make decisions over the small thing, the so-called small things, so that they all fit under what you've told us to do. Pursue your purpose and be conformed to your character. Help us to contemplate these things this week. We ask you to grant us safety. Help us to be good and accurate ambassadors of you as we represent you in the various spheres to which you have called us. And we ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.